Father, we thank you today that as we look back, we've seen you in the fire with us. We look forward to the future and know that you'll be in the fire with us and that you'll walk through the sea with us and hold the waters back. And we're thankful for all that, but Lord, for today, there may be some who are in the midst of the fire, who are in the midst of the flame, and they don't know where to turn. I pray in the name of Jesus that they will see the fourth man in the fire with them today. Lord, I, I lift up Dale and Kathy that you will just uh, uh, reinforce your presence in their lives right now and that you will bring a miraculous healing to Dale. Lord, for those who have buried loved ones in the past week, for the heat brinks, for the winyas, uh, and, and many others who may have lost loved ones, Lord, I pray that they will see you in the fire with them and that you will be that good shepherd that walks with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, I pray that those who are walking through marriage difficulties and, and through financial difficulties will see the fourth man in the fire. And it's none other than Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth. Speak life, speak light, speak healing into these dark places, we pray in the name of Jesus. Now let's pray together the prayer that the Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for worshiping and praying together. Greet one another before you're seated. I know you've been standing a while. Thanks. Didn't Good morning. It's good to be able to uh, share God's Word with you this morning. My name is Phil DeBoof, and I lead the pastoral care team here at 3rd. On the morning of May 14, 2012, I was sitting in my office going through emails, and I came across an email that I'll never forget. It was one of those that every pastor loves to receive. A young couple was uh, telling me about all that they loved about the church and all of the things that uh, they loved about their pastor and how wonderful it was to be a part of an exciting church that was growing and everything was going well. And, and I'll never forget the last line in the email. It said, Pastor, if you ever decide to run for president, you've got our vote. <laughs> Within 12 hours of reading that email, the wheels had fallen off my little red wagon of pride and I had crashed and burned in the ditch. And everything that I held dear was gone. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about that 12 hours. That was, that was just, uh, um, that was the result of eight years of a minor change in my thinking. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today is eight years before. On March 19th of 2004, I'm going to talk to you about a little Dairy Queen in Fairfax, Iowa, where the Lord and I were having a discussion. And and I offered him some advice 
And come to think of it, I was just thinking about this in the first service. <laughs> a lot of bad decisions in my life center around ice cream. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> Maybe I ought to take a clue. But at any rate, the Lord and I were talking, and, and I remember I didn't make any major changes. I, I just made a minor change in my thinking, in my theology, in my mindset, in my life practice. You see, Lord, I, I've lived this Christian life for 44 years, and I think I'm doing pretty good, and I think maybe I can take it from here. Now, nothing really changed monumentally from the outside looking in. I still said all the right words. I still went to all the right places. I didn't go to any of those bad places. I did all the right things. But I began to relax accountability. I began to question the voices in my life and listen sometimes to the voices that I knew that I should take captive and make obedient to Christ. And I began to let those thoughts linger and I began to entertain those thoughts. And over the years I found myself in a place that was totally different than what I had ever intended. You see, if you think about a jet liner leaving an airport, leaving a runway, if they set their course only one degree off, you won't notice it very much in the first hour or the second hour, but by the end of the day, that jet liner could be hundreds of miles from its intended destination. And so it is in our Christian life. It isn't usually the big sins that derail us. None of us think, well, I'm going to go out and do this today. But it's the repeated small mind changes, mind shifts that cause us to listen to the lies of the tempter instead of hearing the voice of the good shepherd. Today we're going to talk about facing temptation, and I, I hope and pray that we can learn how to face temptation courageously and victoriously. We have two texts that I want to read. One is from James chapter 1, and one is from uh, Psalms chapter 1. So if you would turn with me first to our text in James chapter 1, page 1196, we'll read verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who keep all of their commandments. Oh, didn't read that right. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. The phrase that I would like to have you catch from this scripture in the NIV says dragged away, the King James says drawn away, and that's the phrase that I want us to think about when it comes to temptation. We are drawn away. Think of a fish with a hook in its mouth. We're drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. 
So that's the phrase I want you to remember from there. Now if you'll flip over to Psalm chapter 1 for our second text. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. People of God, this is the Word of God. So the contrast that I want us to see and to frame our entire message around today is this idea of being drawn away by lust or being planted in the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to keep that picture in your mind as we look through. I would like to suggest that there are four areas that the enemy entices us and tries to draw us away. And coincidentally, they are the, they're the very same four areas that we hold valuable as a church. In fact, they are our core values. And if you'd look at that sheet with me, we're going to talk today about intimacy, created for deep connection with God. We're going to talk about identity. We know who and whose we are. We're going to talk about belonging, created for deep connection with others. And we're going to talk about purpose, sent with significance for kingdom impact. And I want us to see this morning how the enemy tries to draw us away from all four of those core values. Here at Third Church, we believe those are the core of everything we believe, everything we try to teach, everything we try to minister and do at this church. We try to center around those four things that we will have intimacy with God, that we will have identity, know what our identity is, that we will have belonging to each other, and we will have purpose as a church. But the enemy doesn't want to see that because when it happens... We have revival and we have renewal. So the enemy is trying every day to draw us away in these four areas. Let's talk, first of all, about intimacy. Uh, the story of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. You realize how, what they had before sin? You realize how they had it made? Can you imagine walking and talking with God? Just taking an evening stroll, talking about the creation that God had just made looking at all the animals, coming up with names for the animals, talking about deep subjects, what's it been like through eternity, just having that intimate conversation with God. You've maybe had one of those moments in your life when you felt really, really close to God. Think about that physically being with God in the beginning. But the enemy came in, Satan came in and offered a counterfeit. And with every temptation, he always gives you something that's it's a knockoff. It's really close, but not quite. And in this case, he offered them the counterfeit of information over intimacy. You know, if you eat this, this tree, you'll have knowledge of good and evil. They chose knowledge over knowing him. They chose information about God instead of intimacy with God. And I want to say this morning that all of us are drawn away so often from intimacy with God and intimacy with each other. And the enemy draw, uh, presents a counterfeit for us. 
With our intimacy with God, he presents the counterfeit of a checklist. If you'll do this and don't do this, you'll make it. The problem is none of us can attain his holiness. But the enemy would like us to think that we could. He'll keep us baiting us along and pulling us along of this checklist of religion, religious exercise that has no benefit to godliness whatsoever. And we get lost, we get, we're struggling, we get weighed down with the legalism of this world and, uh, and of the church, and, and the life is sucked right out of us until our passion for God is gone. We wake up one morning and the love is gone. We wonder what happened. Well, we, we resorted, we fell for the counterfeit of a checklist instead of absolutely getting to know him in all of his beauty. He's also distorted and offered a counterfeit for, for human relationship and human intimacy. The whole porn industry, which is billions and billions and billions of dollars strong, is based on the pulling away from genuine intimacy and providing a counterfeit that is so destructive. And the enemy sets the trap and then he pulls. He draws us away. The second one that he draws us away from is in the area of identity. And the story there is... Uh, I have two stories, Esau uh, and the prodigal son. I won't take a long time with this, but you remember Esau. He was, he was the uh, older twin of Jacob and Esau. He was the grandson of Abraham. And since Esau was the oldest, he also had uh, owned, had possession of the birthright so that all of the promises of Abraham, all of the land, all of the riches, all of the family inheritance was to be passed down to Isaac and then through Isaac down to Esau because he had the birthright. That was his identity. He was the grandson of Abraham, and he was the first grandson of Abraham. But one day he went out hunting, and he came home hungry. He was famished. And wouldn't you know it, his brother Jacob was over there cooking some stew, and it smelled really good. And uh, Esau says, give me some of that stew. And, he, and Jacob, the conniver that he was, thought, hmm, this is an opportunity. He said, I'll give you a bowl of this, a 15-cent bowl of soup in exchange for your birthright all of the blessings of Abraham, all of the houses, all of the lands for this 15-cent bowl of soup. Will you do it? And Esau says, yeah, thank you. Eats the soup. And it says in, in the book of Hebrews, he says he sought redemption with tears, but he had given it up, and it, he didn't have it anymore. His inheritance is gone because he fell for the counterfeit. That identity of being Abraham's grandson, Isaac's firstborn, he gave up for a 15-cent bowl of soup. My question is, how cheap are the things that we are drawn away by? I mean, really, really. He gives us an excellent instruction today in that. And then the prodigal son, his identity was in the father's house, but he chose to go off into a far country and make a new identity for himself, a false identity for himself that also ended in destruction. So church, the enemy is trying to draw us away from our identity, draw us away from our intimacy with God. And third, he's trying to draw us away from belonging to one another. And this one's a little bit hard for me to preach because I'm an individualist by nature. I spent a lot of my life in a career where I just could go back in the back 40 and nobody had to know where I was. I could do my own thing. I loved it. I'm an individualist. I, I, that's just who I am. And you want to see me stutter, put me in a small group at a table with five people and ask me some tough questions. <laughs> I, I, get, I get really spooky about that. But you know what? The longer I live, the more I realize how much we need each other. 
And when you look at the story of Peter, you know, when he was, when he was uh, around all of his buddies, he talked pretty big. Lord, I'll never leave you. It'll never happen to me. But then, after the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone forsook Jesus and fled. They all went their separate directions, and Peter found himself by himself, separated from the group, and his strength was gone. Stood around the fire, and the servant girl says, Weren't you with that man from Galilee? No, I haven't seen him. By the time it was over, he was cussing and swearing, saying, I never knew the man, because he was separated from those that could give him strength. David was another example, um, and he, his example is what I call the isolation of leadership. I want you to know something about when you are in leadership, there's an isolation that takes place, and it's a very dangerous thing. If things are going good, you're thriving on the approval of man, and, and you are isolated by pride. When things are going bad, you get low on yourself, and you're, you're isolated in self-pity. It's just one of the burdens of leadership. I say it this way, uh, the temptation to fly solo through the friendly skies of approval is intoxicating. And so I say that so that we will learn to hold up our leaders in, in intercession and in prayer because the weight of that is very difficult, that isolation. We need to plug in with them, bear the burden with them. I like to think about the redwoods in California that grow about 375 feet tall. I used to think when, I, when I'd see pictures of those giant trees, I thought, my, what a root structure they must have. They must go way into the ground, at least 200 feet. But if you study the root structure of a red, uh, redwood, you don't realize they're only about 10 feet deep. They go horizontally, and they interlock with the trees around them, and that's where they get their strength from. That one 375-foot evergreen is strengthened by every evergreen that is around, or every redwood that is around it. And it's very, I'm not saying we shouldn't send our roots deep. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But we also need to send our roots out and be connected with one another in the body of Christ. Because when we get separated, when we get isolated, we'll be like Pastor Kevin said last week, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. We need to keep those connections. And the enemy is always trying to pull us away from belonging. And fourth, the enemy tries to pull us away from purpose. Drawn away from purpose. Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a uh, heavenly experience. The Shekinah glory of God came down on that place. And while they were standing there, Moses and Elijah stood up. And I was thinking this week, that'd be about like going to Mount Rushmore and standing up there by Abe Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. All of a sudden, they came to life and started talking to you. It'd be quite an experience, wouldn't it? You'd tell your friends about it. Well, that's kind of what happened to, Moses, to uh, Peter, James, and John. They were on the top of the mountain. Moses and Elijah came, uh, appeared and started talking back and forth with Jesus. The glory of the Lord just filled that place. And this, you know what Peter's response was? He said, let's build three tabernacles. Let's put a wall around this wonderful glory of God that we're seeing. The Bible says that he said that because he didn't know what else to say. <laughs> I always kind of get a kick out of that. Peter just had to say something, right? But I think there was, there's a lesson in that. Because you see, our purpose as believers and followers of Christ is to reflect his glory. No more, no less. It's that simple. When we come into the glorious presence of Christ, our purpose is to reflect his glory. 
But the temptation is to capture it. The temptation is to memorialize the miracle, to chase after the miraculous instead of simply letting the Shekinah glory of God reflect off of us and move out everywhere we go. We've got some great speakers coming this fall and, and a kingdom of, uh, a global conference. It's going to be fa- fantastic, but I want to tell you something. Revival isn't about the names of the people that come to our church. Revival isn't about the, even about the miracles that happen. Revival looks like you and me reflecting God's glory, washing people's feet, serving one another in love, anonymously doing things behind the scenes. That's what renewal and revival looks like. And yet we like to, we like to uh, go after the spectacular. A little bit like Gideon. After he had won his battle with 300 men, if you read that story, he, he had an ephod, um, which I don't know a whole lot about how this all happened, but people started worshiping this ephod that Gideon had worn, and they hung it up in the tabernacle, and it became an abomination to the children of Israel because they, uh, wow, this Gideon brought us a mighty victory. Let's worship this event. Let's capture this glory instead of just reflecting it. They finally had to get rid of it. It was, it was an abomination. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real. Yeah. We were talking at, at one of our meetings this past week. There's been a, a mighty miraculous thing going on in Dalton, Georgia for the last uh, two or three years. Some of you may have heard about it. The, a Bible that has been producing an oil that has been used and it's gone out, and there have been people healed. It's been a miracle. We've had people in our church that have had miracles who went down to Dalton, Georgia. It was a pretty amazing thing. And I believe in the beginning it was all of God, but there's a kind of a sad thing that happened. At one point, the oil stopped flowing, but they had to maintain the miracle. So they started buying oil in bulk at the tractor supply store in town. They weren't making any profit off of this. Please don't. I don't have anything against the heart of these people, but it's just an example of how we try to capture the glory of God instead of reflecting it. So all I'm saying is let's not get carried away by that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Don't be drawn away by the spectacular. Don't be drawn away in purpose. Our purpose is simply to reflect the glory of God. In Matthew 4, in the wilderness temptation of Christ, Jesus faced these very same temptations. In intimacy, he was tempted to worship a false god. And worship is all about love and devotion. It's all about intimacy. And the enemy gave him a counterfeit to worship. And Jesus said, nope, you shall worship the Lord God and him only shall you serve. Jesus was tempted in his identity two times. Satan says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Throw yourself down off the temple. Later on on the Calvary, it happened again. His identity was challenged again when the people walking by says, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. But see, he stayed true to his identity as the son of God. He knew who he was. His identity was challenged. His belonging was challenged. His belonging to others 
The Spirit took him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he was isolated and without food. And I believe the reason the Father did that was so that he would be tempted in every way as you and I are when we are tempted to be isolated and separated. And yet Jesus came through that. Even when the enemy offered him false fellowship, he said, take these stones and make them, turn them into bread so that you can be sustained. He said, no, no thanks. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus was challenged in his intimacy, in his identity, in his belonging, and he was even challenged in his purpose in that mount of temptation when the Satan came to him and said, throw your down, yourself down from the temple. You will make the biggest miracle. This will be in the headlines. Everybody will know that you've cast yourself down and the angels came and rescued you. And Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord your God. That's not my purpose. My purpose is not to come and make a big scene. My purpose is to come and serve and wash feet and lay down my life as a ransom for many. He stayed true to his purpose. If I could have the next slide, this is probably the most important thing for us to take home with us today. In his victory over temptation, here and throughout his journey toward the cross, the perfect high priest achieved righteousness for us. This victory is obtained by faith and by the miracle of new birth, being firmly established, planted in the person of Christ and in the body of Christ. I used to think that when we looked at Matthew 4, that it was a formula for us to resist temptation. And I want to tell you something, formulas never work. <laughs> This isn't about making sure that you learn enough scripture so that you can tell the devil to get lost. That's part of it, but that's not the whole reason for this. The purpose of Matthew 4 was for Jesus Christ to conquer temptation on our behalf in everything that you and I will ever tempt, be tempted in, and we find ourselves planted, firmly established in him, we too can be victorious over temptation. It's not how many Bible verses you learn, it's whether you are planted in Christ and growing in him. So, I've got some action steps that I want to go through today about being victorious in temptation. The first one is this, learn what God says about you. Pour through the scriptures and find out who you are in Christ. When you are established in him, you know what? You aren't a loser. You aren't a sinner. You aren't lost. If you are planted in Christ, the Bible says you and I are the righteousness of God in Christ. It says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Don't listen to the lies that say you're nothing, that you're never going to make it, that you can't be good enough. It's all in him. In Christ, we have the ability to live above temptation and to conquer and walk through temptation. Is it easy? No. Will we fail sometimes? Yes. But I don't want us to fall for the lie that failure is a foregone conclusion for the child of God. God. Jesus paid way too high a price for our salvation for us to walk around as eternal losers and sinners. The reason he died on Calvary is so that we could be saints of God in Christ Jesus. So, learn what God says about you. The second action step, learn how to separate the lies from the truth. And there's three questions there when you face a temptation that I think are valuable. What are the counterfeit promises drawing you away? Oh, he can make it look so slick and so good. 
But look a little deeper. Look for the counterfeit in that promise. What are the implications of your choices? That choice that I made, which was this minor adjustment eight years before that day in 2012, if I had taken the time and had the good sense to trace this thing out and see what are the implications of me doing this on my own, what are the implications of this down the road? If I, if I choose not to take every thought captive and make obedient unto Christ, what are the implications of that? And the third question, how will this choice affect those around you? If we can, if we can uh, genuinely and honestly answer those questions when we are in that place of temptation, I believe we can turn our heart away from the destruction that the enemy is trying to pull us away, pulling us away from intimacy, from identity, from belonging, and from purpose. Third, speak truth into your temptation encounter. Speak the word of God just like Jesus did. Uh, this is an important ingredient. We need to know the word. We need and, and be able to speak the word when the tempter comes against us. And fourth, in true humility, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want you to know today there's victory in temptation. That we don't have to crash and burn. The Bible says, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So I'm not here to preach condemnation, but I am here to preach the victory that Christ has made available to us. As we close today, I wanted to share a little bit of a pep talk that is not totally related to this, but all week the Holy Spirit has just been dealing with me about this. And he says, I really feel like I need to share it with you. It's about... Uh, some mountains that I visited this week. I had the privilege of visiting five mountains this week. Not physically, but in the spirit. It wasn't a spooky thing. We were having prayer, uh, staff prayer over every Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. We have staff prayer and we had some of the prayer ministry leaders came in and were just doing soaking prayer over us. And during that time, the Lord took me in scripture to five different mountains. And I just wanted to quickly share the last two. The first three I already talked about, the Mount of Temptation, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Mount of Redemption at Calvary. We've already talked about those three, but the other two that the Holy Spirit brought me to on Tuesday morning was in Hebrews chapter 12, and I run a read about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Um, if you want to turn there, it's Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start reading with verse 18. The whole book of Hebrews is a contrast between law and grace, between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's painting a picture of what it was like at Mount Sinai, starting in verse 18. He said, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight of Mount Sinai was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. If you go back in the Old Testament, Exodus, and read what actually happened here, it was downright scary stuff. It said that there was a trumpet blast that, would grow, that grew louder and louder and louder and louder and that a great voice from heaven as he was speaking the Ten Commandments to, to, uh, uh, to Moses and the people, the, the people wanted to get out of there. 
There was terror. There was fear. But he says, you have not come to that mountain. Remember what I said? Listen to what God says about you. A lot of us live at Mount Sinai trying to fill out the checklist, making sure we get it all done and get it all done right. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't live there anymore. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, verse 22, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this is the part I really want to key on as we close today. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He used to be confused by that, but you remember when Abel was killed by his brother Cain way back in Genesis? And God spoke to Cain and he said, Cain, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I wonder what it was saying. I think it was saying, guilty! Guilty! You are guilty! Your brother's blood is speaking, screaming it from the ground. Hebrews says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It speaks forgiven. It speaks pardoned. It speaks redeemed. It speaks righteous. The spirits of men made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to close with a story that just happened this week to, just to give you an idea of what redemption looks like. I've got a good friend that I didn't even know till about eight months ago. He's become one of my closest buddies. And I called him last night to ask if I could share this story. His name is Jeff. He's 49. And back in June, he called me up and he wanted to see me in the office. He told me his story. He'd been in a car accident when he was young, had been through multiple surgeries because of the car accident, um, got in the process, got hooked on drugs, and was doing drugs for many, many years. Later on, he started dealing drugs, and his entire uh, uh, two marriages that went south on him, everything he worked for just fell apart. And he was sharing all this stuff to me, and he says, I really just don't feel like I can get back in church, but I kind of want to. And so we prayed that day. There was nothing revolutionary that happened, but I prayed with, with Jeff that day, and I, and I asked God to open his eyes to his grace for Jeff. Because in Jeff's mind, he was a loser and was always going to be one. That was the end of the prayer. I didn't hear from Jeff for a couple months until August he called me again and he said, I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer, inoperable. I've got a few months to live. And so over the last few months, Jeff and I have become extremely close friends. I go see him once a week. Carl goes to see him once a week. And on Friday, as I sat talking to Jeff Vanderbeek, this was what he told me. This is what redemption looks like. He said, Phil... He said, oh, sometime back, Carl looked me straight in the eye and said, Jesus Christ is the most important thing you can do, Jeff. And he said, I believed that, and I made that real in my life. 
And he says, I am so thankful. Jeff weighs about 120 some pounds now. He's outlived his doctor's uh, prediction by about four months and he's gaining weight. So we're praying for a miracle. I'm still praying for a miracle. But this is what Jeff told me. He says, I am so thankful for my life. I am so thankful for what God has done in my life. And he said, you know what I've been doing lately? And I said, what's that, Jeff? He says, the people that I used to deal drugs to, I've been telling them about Jesus. (laughs) And you know what? When you're on your deathbed, people listen. (laughs) And he said, the people I used to knock on their door and drop off drugs, I'm going and hooking them up with Jesus. And he said, I am so thankful. You see, the blood of Abel said guilty, condemned, loser. And for 35 years, that's all Jeff heard. That's all Jeff listened to. I'll never amount to anything. But the blood of Jesus has a better word for Jeff. He's got a better word for you. I'm going to ask Alan and the praise team to come forward. And we're going to do two songs today at the end instead of just one. And, and the reason we want to do that, I, I want to give us some time to cut some ties from the lies. <laughs> Maybe you've been told things that have you condemned, discouraged. I want you to know God's on your side. If you are planted in Christ, if you are planted in Christ, heaven and earth, life, death, nothing can separate you from his love. So we're just going to have two songs that we sing in declaring who we are in Jesus Christ, uh, declaring victory over temptation in our life, and letting the love of Jesus just flow in and through us.